Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks. Welcome to Everything Cooperative. You know, this is a beautiful Thursday morning, and we have Miss Danielle Davey on with us this morning. She took over the position that Monica Rains had at the Federation of Southern Co-ops. Monica went to work for the Department of Agriculture, and we're really pleased that she was able to do that, and I think she's in D.C. now with COVID. That was sort of a delay in her getting to D.C., to work for the Department of Agriculture, and Dania looked like she was preparing for this position since she was born. Uh, Dania, good morning. Thank you for being on the show with us this morning. Good morning, Vernon. Thanks for having me. So I have it, and I learned this from Monica and Ralph Page and Cornelius, all of the folks at the Federation, that at the turn of the century, 1900, that black own 30 million acres of land, 30 million acres of land, and today is only about 2.5 million acres. We've lost all of that land that black farmers had, and your job is to do what at the Federation? So with my title of Director of Land Retention and Advocacy, my job is to end that trend, hopefully. If I'm successful when I retire, that will no longer be the statistic that we have to resort to. But yes, as you said, at the turn of the century in 1910, uh, 218,000 black farmers acquired 15 million acres of land, unfortunately due to unrelenting institutionalized racism by 1992. There were only 18,000 black farmers who owned about 2.3 million acres which represents a 90% decline in both black farmers and black owned land. So my task is to address those issues, both through legislation, through uh, advocacy efforts and uh, make all the recommendations and, and provide services to our members in such a way that that's no longer a statistic. So that's, that's the small task ahead of me. So I have it that, after the Civil War, we're talking about 1863, that we were supposed to get 40 acres in a mule. And I, I have it, my family didn't get there. So some of these families got it, or I, which I've been surprised to find out, and some was able to get more than 40 acres. Uh, and I just left the St. Helena Islands, and there they bought their land. They were not given any land, but they ended up getting a lot of land, and they've lost it in, in heirs. Um, laws are one of the things that causes them to lose them, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes uh, from now. But 218,000 farmers, you said 1920, and it went down to 18,000. Boy, 90% reduction. Do you have any sense of why that's such a loss in black farmers? 
Absolutely. There are a myriad of explanations. Uh, the way that I think of it is that when the Constitution was drafted, Blacks were legally classified as property. And it wasn't until the 13th Amendment was drafted that they even gained legal human citizenship status. So when you look at the foundation of this country and how significant and integral property ownership was to wealth and standing and human uh, citizen rights, you see that when the country was founded, it was not designed in such a way that Blacks would have full human citizenship rights. And so I think that all of the government agencies that would have otherwise been designed to improve outcomes for farmers have had a significant history of having the opposite effect. And so when black farmers attempt to secure loans to keep the capital necessary to have a farming operation, when they try to acquire land and you know maintain that, we have a long history of lynchings. I was just at the lynching memorial this summer and saw a, a plaque that told the story that there was a family that was lynched or just not abandoning the land that the, the white community was trying to force them off of. So we have both direct government actions or state sanctioned actions uh, that was uh, born out through both legislation and discriminatory acts by various government actors. We have banks that played a role in, in not giving terms that were appropriate for uh, black farmers to be successful. We have community members kind of deputizing themselves to engage in white supremacist terrorism, pushing black farmers off of their land. And then we obviously have a variety of other issues, including heirs property. We have a lack of uh, access to attorneys to draft estate plans, to draft uh, proper deeds for families. So there, there are multiple levels at which we see this land loss and this black farmer decline uh, taking place throughout history. So I have it, there's, there's something else. You mentioned a lot of things that it's really clear they played a role in us going from 15 million acres. I had heard 30, you said 15. So some huge number of acres down to 2.5. We, we, our stats said the same there. This, tremendous reduction of ownership of land and the Europeans had it that the only people could vote originally were people that own land if you didn't own land you couldn't vote so owning land has been crucial in this democracy and in other governments and then we were losing land because people white folks just wanted to take it you mentioned somebody got lynched and I guess that was in uh Montgomery, Alabama, you went to the lynching museum? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And I remember as a child, one of my first uh, memories of actually understanding what that looked like. I grew up in Orlando, Florida, and I saw the movie Rosewood, okay. which was very nearby. And that movie had a profound impact on my understanding of American history. I'm originally from Jamaica. And so I, I learned a lot of American history in an academic way, but that movie for me was very vivid. And just the reality that there were thriving black communities. These, these are not anomalous. Tulsa is not an anomaly, right? Rosewood is not an anomaly. We see that black communities and farms were thriving. And then there are a variety of uh, Jim Crow 
actions and, and just, quite frankly, individual actors that were state sanctioned in many ways to enact in a variety of, of terroristic acts, lynchings, burning homes down, you know, the most extreme versions of what we consider to be white supremacist, anti-black racism. I think a lot of people think, though, that those very obvious situations are what was driving this, the losses that we see. And so because we don't really see those very stark uh, communities being burnt down in the way that we did historically, I think there's a false sense of complacency in terms of what has happened with legislation, what has happened institutionalizing those practices. And so there are many ways in which uh, other forms of, you know, covert violence, I would say, against Black landowners kind of have come more so to the fore. And so the, the task is really understanding all of the levels of which legislation plays a role in, in those problems. I got it. And I totally agree with you. And I want to say there are some other risks of running a farm. So running a farm and my parents in Bluefield, West Virginia, my two brothers and my father, we we farmed about an acre of land. OK. And you have animals getting in there. You have different weeds and stuff you get in the way. You have too much rain can mess up the fire. You have too little rain can mess it up. If you have frost comes in, you may have to cover the plants. You have all of these different things that's going on. Plus, sometimes if you harvest too little, you don't make enough money. And if you harvest too much, if everybody's harvesting too much, then people can pay a little for it and you don't get enough. There's all of these risks of running a farm. And that to me is why you had a department of agriculture to help farmers mitigate all of these natural risks. And then if you have department of ag and the U S government, small business administration, the state, the federal, the local saying to black farmers, you know, you cannot have these programs that we put in place to help farmers. Then that just made it, I don't know, 10 times worse. I want to say worser. That this is worse than worse. Okay. And and that to me is why too often the heirs would walk away from the farm. It's just hard, hard, hard work with little or no sort of, you cannot guarantee you're going to have enough food at the end of the year or enough money at the end of the year or to make it to survive. So it got, it's just too hard and people walked away. What do you think about that? Absolutely. Agriculture is inherently high risk. And so, but a lot of our agricultural innovation uh, was conceived of by black farmers. And so when we know that the, the, the odds are already against you environmentally, it's a high risk job. It's a backbreaking job at that time. It's become it's still a backbreaking job. It's, it's in many times a thankless job. And so when those are compounded by governmental actions, community member actions, it becomes even so much harder for generational transfer of both the knowledge of agricultural production, as well as navigating all of those institutions. And so we see generations that are kind of turned away 
either from seeing how difficult it is to maintain a farming operation, but also just the, the blatant racism that they might have seen their fathers and grandfathers experience. And, and that had a very significant chilling effect on black farmers. So listen, we're going to go into our first break. And for everybody out there, we've talked about the massive problem of farming, particularly for black folk throughout the years, which has caused us to lose, go from 15 million acres to 2.5 million acres, and also from 280,000 black farmers down to 18,000 black farmers. And there was this great migration from the south to the north, to Chicago, to D.C., to New York, and all of these different places. And when we come back, we're going to begin to talk about some of the things that Danya is doing to mitigate some of these things. We'll be right back. Please don't touch that dial. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative, and we have Ms. Danya Davy on with us this morning. She is the Director of Land Retention. I'm just going to use that part of it because that's what we're talking about, land retention, retaining farmers. For the Federation of Southern Co-ops, the Federation of Southern Co-ops, no, you tell us. What is the Federation of Southern Co-ops, Dania? So the Federation of Southern Cooperatives is a 54-year-old association of cooperatives and we have members that are black farmers, black land owners, and black cooperatives. We were originally formed in 1967 by 22 cooperatives and we provide a variety of services to those those three groups that I mentioned. What are some of those services? Variety of services. So a key part of the services that we provide are technical assistance. So we have a a research uh, training center down in Epps, Alabama, that actually has a research farm. We also have an agroforestry center, the same location in Epps, Alabama, where a registered forester can help with forest land management. We provide technical assistance for applying for USDA programs and services, and, and all of the professional um, and management responsibilities in operating and maintaining a farm. And then through our air property, our air property and mediation center, we provide legal services that include referrals to our network of attorneys for clearing title, among other things, estate planning. And then we also provide legislative advocacy for our members to ensure that policies reflect their needs. And then a significant component of our work is marketing as well as our cooperative development, which is a very, very key part of how we're able to help folks understand all of the benefits. Like we spoke before the break about all of the risks involved in agricultural production, agribusiness production, and the history of the Federation kind of bears out the truth that agricultural innovation, risk mitigation, business success uh, is all really supported very well through cooperative development, a democratic process for managing and, and pooling resources, pooling that institutional knowledge to ensure community success. So it takes a village to raise a child, everybody, 
raising a child, but it's the same thing in raising a business, raising a family. It's, it takes this village. And so the Federation, in the height of the Civil Rights Movement, 1967, found that if they came together cooperatively, they can help each other. That's help each other. Absolutely. So civil rights plus cooperative development equals the Federation. That's a big part of what attracted me to this organization and to this work. I'm originally from Jamaica. My grandfather and my great-grandfather were both immigrants from China to Jamaica. And a lot of their success in Jamaica was in working in the, the Chinese diaspora in Jamaica in particular, uh, worked in what we would now look at as cooperatives. So they pooled their resources. They had grocery stores. They had laundromats, bakeries. And so being a part of that, being a part of my own personal history really attracted me to this concept of cooperative business practices for generational and intergenerational wealth. And so I think the Federation has played a key role in keeping the cooperative development movement as well as the civil rights movement going so that we can really address the root causes of black wealth loss. That is an interesting history. Your great-grandfather, your father, uh, from China to Jamaica, and then bringing with them what the Africans brought from West Africa, how we work together, how we pool, how we take whatever little bit we have. Okay, that's knowledge, that's the pennies, because there may not have been a lot of money when you all hit Jamaica or when when the Africans hit uh, Charleston, South Carolina, or anywhere in the South, didn't have very much, and the land, the slave owners wanted to make sure they didn't have very much, either in terms of knowledge or money. So they pooled whatever they had, and you all in Jamaica pooled whatever you had, and you ended up with laundromats. Now I thought that's all the Chinese had: no ticket, no, 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 no. You, if you didn't have a ticket, you didn't get your your clothes back. But you had bakeries, you had laundromats, you had, uh, you had all grocery these stores. grocery stores. <laughs> Yeah, all these different businesses by pooling together, working together. Phenomenal. Yeah, Absolutely. And I'm actually living proof right now. My, my family's engaging in another social experiment brought to, into existence by COVID-19 where we actually purchased an intergenerational house. And so I think that I'm completely invested in this collective ownership concept. I think that individualistic wealth accumulation has had a very anti-human outcome throughout our, our country's history. And so I personally uh, see the value. Uh, so my, my households consist of my parents, my sister's family, uh, my sister's son, my daughter. And, you know, we're, we're thinking about what happens after, you know, over the course of this Delta variant or what's going to happen for the next pandemic. And one of the things that was very difficult for us was, you know, that feeling of isolation and, and isolation in, in many of the ways of that definition. And so this experiment that we're embarking on, I think, is a is a part of that legacy. And I, I definitely think that it'll be a very interesting social experiment. But I, I think that that's really going to be part of how we teach our next generation about pooling resources and the value of, of a collective uh, living, you know, business uh, lifestyle. I think it is how we restore the future of this nation. 
That's phenomenal. And uh, how did you all take title? That all of the adults are on the title, or your parents are the ones? Because in in some of these cultures, the senior person are the ones that held the the monies and divided out or held the resources. How are you all doing that? Well, that's a conversation that's in development. At this point, it's my my sister and me that is the generational title owners. Okay. But but we're the stewards. I, I think that there's there are other um, possibilities. You know, you, people can own a home in a trust. There are other ways to hold title to a home in particular. But businesses, um, and, and this is something for air property owners to consider as well in, in terms of consolidation of multiple interests. There does not just have to be one named owner. There can be a trust. Um, but really in thinking about that's the very conversation, the ones that we're engaging in as a family right now, those are the conversations that heirs have to have with regard to property that they've inherited already. And so we're kind of you know, playing it out in real time. And so maybe in the future I can come back on and let you know if this experiment is successful. Fantastic. I, I, I love it. I love it. When I was about 13, I had this idea, and I don't remember sharing it, but it was my father worked on a railroad. My mother had had finished, was going to school, she came out teaching, but I had, and we were working for 25 cents an hour cutting lawns and shoving snow, my brothers and I. But if we all pooled our money, okay, then I had it that we could want for nothing. But it may be that, you know, one person get a car now and five years later another or whatever, whatever. But if we pooled our monies and did it in such a way. And so I've been having these ideas as, as a young person of how we work together collectively and I had forgotten about these until on this show and I think talk to people like you about what you're doing your living experience of of owning a home and how you do that and I like you said that this individual wealth accumulation has not worked and it's hindered us in a lot of ways yeah I, I have it to John Wayne I'm standing by myself I'm bad I'm big I pull myself up by my own bootstraps where too often we didn't have boots to pull ourselves up with. That has not worked, and that creates greed and a whole lot of other things that's not good for society. So how we work together, and this is what the benefits of cooperation is, and you pulled that right in. So you talked about the Federation and what it's doing, the technical assistance, heirs, properties, legislation, marketing, and I wanted to come back to that marketing and cooperative development and technical assistance. So when you said marketing, what do you mean by that? Well, we both assist our farmers and our cooperatives with their own marketing. And then we also have a regional marketing system with the Federation. And the originators of the Federation really kind of the institutional knowledge that we've inherited has really helped us to think of ways, like you said, of pooling all of those resources and so when we use our regional marketing system to encourage our cooperatives to use that as a way to support their own individual cooperative marketing, we can just increase the impact of, of those services. And it also helps cooperatives are not always people's natural go-to business formation. Uh, and I think that, you know, our ancestors had it right. 
And um, we're, we're starting to see that more folks are interested in this model and we provide the services to do that. So we're going to take our second break now. Danya, it is wonderful talking to you. And we're going to come back and I want to talk about ways that you are marketing and ways that you see marketing in the future. I have it. I found, 14 years ago, I figured out what I want to be when I grow up, and that is to market, promote uh, co-ops, develop co-ops. And I taught marketing at Howard for five years. And so I love marketing, and too many cooperators do not market themselves as co-ops. So I really want to come back and talk about this dear to my heart and my passion and I haven't grown up yet, but that's what I want to do when I grow up. We'll be right back. Please do not touch that dial. Welcome back. This is Vernon Oaks. The program is Everything Cooperative. You know, this coming October, October is Co-op Month. That's when we celebrate the cooperatives. It's also the month that the National Cooperative Business Association has their annual co-op impact conference. It is the anniversary of this program. This is our eighth year, Everything Co-op, and it's my birthday. So October is wonderful, wonderful, wonderful month. And we're talking to Danielle Davey, who is the Director of Land Retention and advocacy for the Federation of Southern Co-ops. And we were talking about their marketing system. So what are some of the things that you all are doing to market at co-ops and market, market the 13 states and the farmers and the different co-ops in your collective? So as an extension of, of our cooperative development services, we have a regional marketing coordinator and she provides technical assistance to our cooperatives and actually, you know, travels and, and is, is playing a significant role in building the infrastructure. A lot of our cooperatives uh, have infrastructure barriers to bringing their produce to market. And so we re really have to figure out all of the, the, the entire chain from farm to table uh, and provide services and, and figuring out points of intervention that would support the cooperatives. And so identifying where that infrastructure needs to be uh, built up a little bit more and what the Federation can do with, with our resources and definitely by just being in the community. And, and one of the things that I would encourage folks to learn more about our marketing program and the work that we do to market co-ops is to attend our virtual annual meeting, August 19th through the 21st, that's next week. And the, the theme this year is Build Back Cooperatively, Retooling for a New Economy. And so you, you take, you've taken on this Build Back Better, which is Biden's uh, motto, Build Back Better. You're building back better with co-ops. Don't say it that <laughs> way, but okay. And I do believe that is it. All right. I'm sorry to cut you off. Keep on telling us. Tell us about this annual meeting in the virtual. Now, I've been to four of them when they were physical, I missed the last year's virtual one. I'm going to be on this one. And going to Epps, Alabama and Birmingham is just phenomenal. I really enjoyed it. But tell us about the virtual, please. Absolutely. And there's something very special about attending the annual meeting in person. 
It's definitely a disappointment that COVID-19 has forced us to yet again have a virtual conference. But this theme and, and the fact that it's taking place during a global pandemic gives us the, the chance to think about how we retool for a new economy. What's that going to look like? So if you go to our website, www.federation.coop, there will be a pop-up, but you can also go to www.federation.coop backslash annual meeting 2021, and you'll see the registration as well as the program outlay. So on the, the 19th of August from noon to 2 p.m., we'll have our 54th annual meeting, the kickoff, and our 20th Estelle Witherspoon Lifetime Achievement Ceremony. And then on Friday, uh, we will also have a virtual convening from 10 a.m. to noon, where we'll have a, very, a variety of workshops and demonstrations on agriculture, forestry and sustainable family farm development, land retention and mediation, cooperative and uh, credit union development, as well as our regional marketing uh, programs. And then on Saturday, August 21st, we'll be having Mrs. Maddie Mack Pretty Hat Prayer Breakfast and Membership Meeting from 10 a.m. to noon. And that is always a treat to attend in person. I know that we're going to try to have some of the same energy online. So I'm, I'm hoping that folks register on our website today and participate in our annual meeting next week. So could you tell us a little bit about Estelle Witherspoon? That's Thursday night, and that was used to be at, in Birmingham, I don't know, three, four, five hundred people there, an achievement award. Uh, one year, uh, Jesse Jackson got the award. Another year at the 50th anniversary, John Lewis spoke and was very much involved with the creation of um, the Federation. I missed that one. I was so disappointed. And... Um, Tell us about uh, Estelle Witherspoon, if you would. Who was she? So that I, I, I honestly am drawing a blank. <laughs> I, I don't know the history of the award. I, I know that every year it's a very exciting announcement that comes very closely to the date of the actual Achievement Award ceremony. But you've actually stumped me. I'm going to have to, to do some more research and answer that question more fully the next time I'm on the show. Well, I would, I would ask you if you would, during the next break, if you would text it. I think she started the uh, the quilting bee. I think, I think so, too. I just don't, I don't, the lawyer in me doesn't want to misspeak. So I want to have my facts. Okay. <laughs> That's the lawyer in you. I got it. That question. And, and, um, but it, it's definitely a, a, a celebration uh, to have whoever will honor this year, and and I don't even know myself. Okay. Um, and I, I even if I did know, I don't I don't think I'd be able to announce it today. Who that person is? It's always pretty top secret and pretty exciting when it's announced. So th the reason I wanted to talk about Estelle and then this uh, Miss Mac hat because she was known for the hats she wore, and so they had their prayer breakfast after her. Because you said earlier. Um, that the men, the farmers, you talked about the men, but what I have had it is underneath, behind all of these men doing the work more often in these co-ops were black women that were doing the actual work of running the co-op and making sure it worked and keeping the books and all of that. And too often they did not get the acknowledgement. And so black women have had a tremendous role in this co-op and Jessica Gordon Emhart's book, Collective Courage, brings that out. Uh, she talks a lot about that 
that in that book. So yeah, that's why I wanted to bring this. I didn't want to stump you, uh, but I wanted to bring out the role that women have played, whether it's Estelle Witherspoon or Miss Mack or Monica Raines or Shirley Sherrard or you now coming in that the women have played a tremendous role in in this work. And the Federation absolutely has a diverse both board and our office staff in our various state offices are very diverse in terms of gender in particular. And, and just the leadership style within our organization is, is very egalitarian. I don't see the Federation playing out that history that some other civil rights organizations have played out of, you know, men taking the front and, and holding the mic. I definitely think this is an organization of passing the mic. And that, that history is when, when there's a collective, obviously both men and women are going to play an integral role in the evolution of ideas and the sharing of the work. And I think the Federation has done a really good job of always having women in very significant leadership roles within the organization. And uh, like Carol Zippert is the, she's normally the MC at the annual meetings. Uh, and that's because John talks so slow he couldn't do it, John. <laughs> okay. I was shocked to find out he's a New Yorker. Uh, came down <laughs> from New York. Not a fast talker, talking no, New Yorker at no. all. <laughs> no. So your annual meeting is August the 19th through the 21st. It's all virtual. So if somebody wanted to, including me, to be, you can go on your, you said federation.coop. So that's just F-E-D-E-R-A-T-I-O-N dot C-O-O-P. And it says, I hit events, and then the sixth thing says about the annual meeting, it says register. You hit register, and you can go in and register. Is there a fee to register virtually? Uh, I'm sorry. Is there a fee? To register there there is a fee our members uh, are, are able to get scholarships for the registration fee so for, so for our members definitely contact the office to get uh, your scholarships for registration uh, but there are there are fees involved with the uh, conference and all of that information is on the website okay so you say you are a lawyer Okay, so you went and got a law degree, and now you're working for the Federation. Now, I knew Monica was a lawyer. Uh, how does this law degree help you in your job? That's a great question. So my background before law school was actually public health. So hmm. I was interested in racial disparities and health outcomes, which brought me to an understanding of racial disparities and wealth outcomes. And it was actually the second semester after my second year of law school i was in mississippi working actually on a class action civil rights employment discrimination lawsuit where i was introduced by a, a very good friend of mine from law school to the idea the concept of heirs property black farmers and i made a very informal cold call to ben burkett and he's basically uh, the person who taught me everything uh, that I, I could possibly know at that point in my life. And that's the turning point where this became my passion, because my third year of law school, I spent doing a significant amount of research on heirs property, as well as designing a Staten Fellowship, which I was lucky to get. Uh, I designed it for implementation in Mississippi, but 
because the nonprofit I was working with lost its funding, I actually transplanted it to Durham, North Carolina with the Land Loss Prevention Project. And so the air property work that I started my career doing was estate planning. I was working with black farmers on estate planning, farm transition planning, and those skills really helped me and our heirs property and mediation center uh, supervise our, our now in externs. We have a summer in legal interns that provide a legal assistance to air property owners and our members on a variety of legal issues. And so I, I give oversight to that program and I'm also able to you know, interact with uh, recruiting attorneys for our attorney referral network. But I have that foundational um, license in the state of North Carolina. I've done estate planning, done a lot of farm transition planning, farm business planning, sustainable ag and and legislative advocacy around the farm bill, uh, for example. So being a lawyer has definitely helped me address heirs property and heirs property is often a huge risk management issue for farms and cooperatives. And even since my time here at the Federation, I've started to understand this role of heirs property for co-ops because co-ops collectively own resources. And so what happens to those resources if a member passes away or leaves it? And so being a lawyer helps me to understand all of those issues and, and help folks to work through them. So we started this segment off with marketing, and we went to the annual meeting as a way of marketing the Federation and what it's doing, and you told people they can go into www.federation.coop, hit events, and then go down and register. Uh, and it looks like you can register per day. I'm on the web page looking because this is Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And i got to tell you, I, what's so disappointing with COVID, I mean, it's been a lot of disappointments, but my favorite part of the conference, the five years I went, was Saturday after the uh, annual meeting, they had food, they had barbecue food, and there was a dance. So my favorite part of this was that dance, talking about socializing and getting together. And so we'll miss that this year, but maybe we'll have it next year. So what I'd like to do is come back. Uh, we're taking our final break. It goes by very quickly. And talk about your Airs Property Conference in December and how we come out of these pandemics. This is exciting talking to you. And before we got on the call, you talked about marketing. You want to start your own radio show, so I really want to talk about that. We have a lot to talk about in the next 12, 13 minutes. So everybody out there, please don't touch that dial. We're going to come back with Miss Davy, and we'll talk more about cooperatives, the Federation, marketing, and how people create health and wealth. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody. We're in our final um, segment of this program with Danielle Davy from the Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Just wanted to remind you that this program is, is brought, the, the sponsor has been a National Cooperative Bank. NCB's mission is to support and be an advocate for America's cooperatives and their members, especially in low-income communities by providing innovative financial and related services. 
And these low-income communities too often are black, brown, and native communities. And NCB has been right there, and they've been supporting this program. So, Ms. Davey, we said we were going to come back and we would talk about marketing, and I have it that most co-ops do not promote, do not market, that they are co-ops. Um, you told me that you want to do your own podcast. What's that about? And radio show program. Yes, so I have a dream of having a federation radio program. And the, the, the preliminary step towards that dream being realized is this podcast. And I really see it as a part of all of the programs that we provide, um, being able to let our members know uh, through a programmatic update on a regular basis, what we're doing in the community, I think especially uh, with the loss of being able to meet in person at our annual meeting and our other workshops, there's been a sense of uh, loss that we've all collectively experienced. And I've been really excited to find out how actively engaged our members have been in our webinars. And so just observing, you know, my parents' generation during COVID and how listening to the podcasts, listening to YouTube programs, listening to WhatsApp links uh, became a, a very significant uh, way of getting information. And so I'd like to see the Federation disseminating information. For example, there was a recent announcement on July 29th about the air property relending program by the USDA. And we get a lot of questions in the office from air property owners trying to find out what the steps are that are required for accessing a program such as the air property lending program. And if we have a podcast where we have a programmatic update, we interview one of our members or our co-ops, and then we talk about legislation or programs that are being announced to our community, we can really have some engagement in a way that's very accessible, very user-friendly, and it's kind of that call and response that is going to be a part of the, the new uh, economy that we're building back cooperatively. And so I think the podcast will serve as a way of when we're trying to develop policy to have call-in uh, opportunities for folks to ask questions about pending legislation and the position that our members or the Federation might be taking on any given legislation. And definitely with the, uh, the upcoming 2023 Farm Bill going to be very important to get the black farmer, the black cooperative perspective, uh, the black landowner perspective on all of the many programs within the farm bill so that we make sure that this next farm bill really institutionalizes best practices for our membership. So I see the podcast as being a tool uh, and then hopefully one day uh, it can be a radio program that, that serves that need. So let me suggest one thing. First off, as I want to promote and develop co-ops. So anything I can do to help you in that dream, you got it. Let's talk about it. And I'd speak for Pat Thornton also because that's what we want to do. She's a producer and my first cousin, by the way. And, and so I was just visiting Shirley Sherrard in Albany, and they have a radio station down there, and they're looking for content. Okay. So why not suggestion? Start the radio show first, and this is what we do. We have this this show. Pat will edit out any mistakes I make. You don't make any. So, and then she'll put it on our webpage, www.everything.coop. And then uh, Justin, who does our webpage stuff, he puts it on Spotify and YouTube and oh, all of these different places. I don't. Even, okay, you know about them better than I. 
So it's out there. So I would suggest maybe look at doing a radio show first and let that become the podcast, and that's what I'm doing. And you can get that started probably with Mrs. Sherrod very, very quickly. Or And or we can do things together. I, would, I don't know. There's all kinds of possibilities. I love what the Federation is doing to help black folk create wealth. And as you said earlier, health and wealth. Uh, being healthy people and then also wealthy people having the money to get health and also having the health to help make the money. So it goes hand in hand. All right, love it. So w- whatever we can do, we're, we're out there. And I would say I'd rather see it next week instead of next month. We're on the same page. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to discuss this further with you. It's definitely something that's near and dear to my heart. So I look forward to following up on that conversation with you. And I definitely think it'll the radio program or the podcast is going to play a huge role in our recruitment for our air property conference in December, uh, which we're, we're, we're monitoring for daily with this Delta variant, whether or not we'll be able to have that in person. My goal is to have our air property conference in person this December, uh, the date to be finalized once we have a sense of whether it will be safe to proceed in person. And what our Airs Property Conference does is we recruit 100 air properties who have some issue, whether it's a title issue, uh, you know, an estate matter, um, or, or they just want some estate planning assistance to try to make sure that the next generation doesn't have to grapple with any Airs Property issues. So we give them a checklist uh, that's a handbook that gives you a 12-month step-by-step ways to resolve your air property issue. And at the conference, we give a lot of information, a lot of support, and our our externship through Southern University Law Center, as well as our summer interns, they will assist with helping the families that participate in our air property conference meet that checklist every month. So things like getting a survey done, getting a family tree done so that you know who all the heirs are, identifying an attorney that's a part of our attorney referral network. Um, and now hopefully with the rollout of the air property relending program, there'll be additional opportunities for the Federation to possibly be one of the community development financial institutions that can assist even with having the financial resources for resolving air property issues. So by the time the air property conference rolls out in December, I think that we'll have a a really, really wonderful opportunity for folks who want to get an air property family issue resolved, the services that they need so that by the end of next year, this time, we'll have 100 fewer families with air property issues. Now, is this only for people in the members of the Federation? And the reason I asked that was when Monica was on the show two years ago or so, we had more people interested. And these were people, this problem is a rural problem, but it's also an urban problem. If somebody has left a home, which you talked about, you and your family are having a home where you're owning it together. But if somebody leaves without a will and sometimes with a will, they can have heirs issues. So this is a national problem. This is just not a farmer's problem. So who can join? Who can come to your conference? And that's December, and you haven't set the date yet, I understand. But who can come? Who can participate? 
Absolutely. We want every and anyone who has inherited land without a proper will being executed, if there's any cloud on the title due to the, the original landowner not having either a proper deed or an estate plan in place where it was clearly identifying who the heirs were, we want anyone who has those questions about, you know, how do we resolve this particular issue with our family land to apply to participate in the conference. Because among other things, we provide mediation services that can help families have those necessary conversations. A lot of times there are disputes about the best use. There are family members who might want to sell their interest or sell the entire tract of land. And so we really provide a comprehensive set of services to air property owners. It's definitely not limited to our members. It's open to any person who owns air property, and we want to provide this service for as, as many people as we possibly can. So definitely visit our website. The date will be determined once we can get a clear sense of whether or not it will be safe to proceed in person, which is my personal preference, because as you said, when we do have our meetings in person, uh, we're able to share a lot more, because um, like community sharing is, is kind of becoming a lost art. And we definitely want to maintain that as a part of our legacy, our history, and we want to continue that to the extent possible, notwithstanding the pandemic. No matter if you come from China, your people are from Africa. That's a norm, whether Native Americans is how you work together. So the um, theme for your conference for the 19th and 21st is Build Back Cooperatively, Retooling for a New Economy. And I have it, there's all kinds of COVID issues out there whether it's COVID-19 or racism, economy, climate change, no matter what. In the last minute, what message do you have for people? What would you like to, uh, how we can build back better, uh, build back cooperatively? I really want to encourage the black community in particular to really spend some time appreciating the rich history that we have in this country. Learn about uh, Shirley Sherrod and new communities, learn about the history of all of the communities that we have had historically who practice cooperative uh, community and cooperative businesses. We have a very strong legacy and I want to see that be a part of the solution moving forward into our new economy and hopefully we can increase and protect black wealth and black health together. Increase, increase, increase. Okay, and protect. Thank you so very much for being on. I'm looking forward to talking to you more in the future, particularly about marketing, co-ops, and getting your radio show up. I don't even want to go to the podcast, then radio show. Let's do the radio show first and then podcast. Whatever we can do to help you, and I know I speak for Pat also, that we'll do. And everybody out there, we'll see you next Thursday. We'll ask you to live cooperatively. And as Ms. Davey just said, learn about this history. It's a wealth of history that we brought over on the slave ships or we brought in from China or however we got here, we brought this together. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next Thursday.